0: Welcome to episode 31 of the RSA Resident and Student podcast series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Victoria Weston, resident at Northwestern University and a past president of RSA speaks with Dr. Mark Ryder, Residency Director at the University of Tennessee, Murfreesboro, Nashville Emergency Medicine Residency, a partner in Middle Tennessee Emergency Physicians, CEO of Emergency Excellence, and the Immediate Past President of AAEM. Today, Doctors Weston and Ryder give guidelines to money for emergency physicians.
1: Hello and welcome to the RSA Podcast Series. My name is Vicki Weston and I am here as the RSA Immediate Past President. And very fortunate to be interviewing Dr. Mark Ryder. Dr. Ryder is an MD and an MBA. He uh, has multiple titles, including the immediate past president of the AAEM Board of Directors and has been an active board member for many years. Today, we're going to be talking about an issue that's near and dear to many of our hearts, and that is going to be finance and how you manage your finance. So, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Ryder here. He has a lot of expertise in how to manage finances from the perspective of the emergency physician. So, we'll be asking. A number of questions about topics that typically impact the emergency physician. So Dr. Ryder, thank you for being here again today.
2: Oh, my pleasure.
1: Yeah. So I guess to start with, can you tell me why this is important for the emergency physician?
2: Well, you bet. It's a pretty big deal because how you manage your finances are going to have a lot of downstream effects. If you're really having a lot of problems with your finances, then that can lead to a lot of personal satisfaction problems and wellness problems. It can Relationship problems could come up, and it could also have a real impact on your job. You might end up making very different job decisions because you're under financial stress than you otherwise would. It also really affects your, your ability to retire on your terms. You want to be able to set a track for you to retire at a point where, where it makes sense for you rather than being stuck in a position where you have to keep working well past your sell by date because you don't really have another choice. But it, it, it's a, it's kind of complex because. You know, as a resident, you're making about $50,000 a year, better than it was when, uh, when I was a resident, but it's still, you know, it pales in comparison to what is now an average resident debt load of over $200,000. And there's plenty of residents who are clocking in at four, five dollars 500000 plus in debt. And this is also after a number of years getting ready for medical school and then going through medical school where they weren't really making any, any sort of an income. So you're starting off your career under a lot of financial stress. At the same time, there's real opportunity. Emergency docs do pretty well for, for themselves. The average emergency doc is making somewhere around $300,000 a year now. And that creates a lot of opportunities. And if you do things right with that type of an income stream, then you can really open up a lot of different doors for your own you know, financial health to, to both do things that are important to you for the financial stability of your family as well as to take advantage of things you know, that you might enjoy, as well as, of course, like we talked about, to be able to retire on your own terms when, when the time is right.
1: Yeah, it can be, seem like such a faraway thing to think about retirement when you're early in your career, but it really is so important to plan for so that you are able to do that when, you, when the time comes. Mm-hmm. So I think with that, you know, I think we should probably go over a number of different topics. So we'll do sort of a rapid fire approach, and then now we'll go through some important areas of finance that we need to learn about today. So why don't we start with saving and budgeting? What should we know and do about saving and budgeting?
2: Right. This is uh, something that a lot of physicians really struggle with, okay? Few physicians do any sort of, of budgeting. And, I mean, if you are able to, you know, consistently within, live within your means, and it's not that important to have a formal budget, but you should have a pretty good idea just in general of what are you spending money on. And you want to make sure you're, you're saving quite a bit. I, I'd say a very reasonable goal for any physician would be to save at least 20% of your income. It's not that much of a stretch for physicians to save even 50% of their income if they're uh, motivated to do so, and that, that definitely makes things a lot easier down the line. What I would recommend as a resident, if you're graduating as a resident and you're starting your first job, is, is try your best to kind of live like a resident for a couple of years to try to keep your cost of living somewhere within the ballpark of where you were as a resident. Maybe splurge some. But maybe delay buying that big house and that really fancy car and all that by a couple of years, if, if not longer. And you'd be surprised how much money you can really put away. Now, you might have a very important place to put that money, like uh, if you've got high interest loans and things like that that you want to really plow into. But otherwise, you can start building a pretty decent nest egg for yourself.
1: Do you have any other thoughts in terms of budgeting besides for your savings, like in terms of housing or cost of living or how that might vary based on where you live?
2: Sure, it does vary a, a tremendous amount you know based on where you live. and it's something you want to kind of take into account when you're looking at you know job opportunities and things like that. You know, different places not only have a very different cost of living, but they also have very different situations in terms of uh, taxes and things like that. If you're a high income person in California, you might be paying an additional thirteen percent of your income to the state compared to where I am in Tennessee, where I'm paying you know zero percent of earned income. That's the, huge. That's
1: a, and that, especially at that income level. That's a huge difference in how much money you can save and put towards other things. So, a lot to think about. You know, you you did touch on loans, and I, I and I think it's a really important topic for many graduating residents and people, and for our students who are listening, who are about to enter residency. You know, you do take on a lot of debt going through medical school, and then I think suddenly figuring out when to pay it back, how to pay it back, and how to manage that can be daunting. So, what advice do you have for our listeners in terms of how to manage that issue?
2: Right. It's gotten dramatically more complicated lately. The government really changed things around quite a bit a few years ago, and they continue to make a lot of changes. One thing they did is that they made it much more expensive to get loans from the government, which is typically the default option for, for most student borrowers. So typically right now, new debt is, from the government is in the 7 to 8% range, which is dramatically higher than about 10, 15 years ago when it went as low as around like 2 to 3%. And that makes a really big difference when that starts compounding over time. So you really need to be looking at that and managing that appropriately. Otherwise, that you know three hundred thousand dollars in debt can turn into five hundred thousand dollars in debt pretty quickly. Now they do have a bunch of pretty interesting programs that they keep changing every year or two or three. That probably makes sense for a lot of student borrowers. They have a variety of different income-based repayment options. Probably the most popular is REPAY, which allow you to essentially, as long as you're paying the threshold that's set based on your income level, based on a certain formula, that the additional debt, that a portion of that is going to continue to be, the interest going to be subsidized by the federal government. So it probably makes sense for most people to be in those programs as a a borrower. And there are a couple of different types of programs that have different pros and cons. But then once you're making real money and you've got a big income, then you want to really get out of those types of programs where you're doing income-based repayment, because otherwise you're going to be paying a lot more than you otherwise would. Then you're at a point where you really want to be, when you have the income, paying off that high interest debt as soon as possible because you're going to get a much better return on paying off debt at 7.9%, which is a completely risk-free. It's a 100% chance that you're going to be able to get a 7.9% return compared to doing a variety of other things with that money. So you really want to move very quickly to, to having a plan that's going to allow you to pay off that debt. The exception to that would be if you think that the public service loan Forgiveness Program is appropriate for you. And that's a program that the government launched a few years ago that essentially if you work in an area that's designated by the government to be you know, very uh, needy, very underserved, or if you're working for a 501c3 organization of certain types of nonprofits, then after a certain amount of years in that program, then the government will, you know, paying a, a, a set amount, then the government will forgive the rest of your debt. There's a couple of problems with that program. For one, it sounds too good to be true. And usually when things are too good to be true, they end up not really working out. So there's a pretty decent chance that the government's going to change the rules at some point. Maybe they'll grandfather in everybody. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll exclude people who make more than a certain amount of money. Maybe you'll be grandfathered on that. Maybe you won't. So it might go away. The other thing is, and you're kind of locked in to certain types of job situations. Now, if you know for sure you're going to be working at this particular hospital and it's a 501c3 and, you know, this is your dream job, then it probably makes sense to do it. On the other hand, if you find yourself locked into the program first and now you're trying to find a job situation that fits the program, then that, that has other concerns because you might not be successful in finding something that really meets that criteria. And that can be a pretty expensive way to do things. Or you might take a job which really isn't the right job for you for a variety of different reasons, maybe location, maybe the job environment, but you're only taking that job because you feel you kind of have to do, to do it because of that program. Or that job that you're taking maybe pays you a lot less, that you might have been a lot better off taking a higher paying job that you like just as much, you know, and, and that actually potentially could offset what you'd get forgiven through the public service loan forgiveness program. And then lastly, the opportunity might go away. You might have that great, you know, direct job for that 501c3. And then after uh, a couple of years, the, instead of being a hospital employee, the hospital says, hey, we want to go bring in a private group. We want to bring in a big contract group or things like that. And now all of a sudden you have a new employer that's not a 501c3. So even though you even stayed at the same hospital, you might find that all of a sudden you don't have an opportunity anymore that allows you to stay within that program.
1: Yeah, I think those are all great points. And I know that As someone who is currently navigating the loan repayment process, it can be very complicated. You know, just a few points that I would like to add is that there are a number of places that are 501c3s, like large university hospitals, that you might not realize. As someone who recently graduated residency, your time during residency and those repayments during residency do count towards it. So I would say if you are at all able to make payments during residency, even if it's under that program, it's a good way to kind of start chipping away at it, even if it's only a small amount every month. It really does make a difference. And then if you are planning to do the loan forgiveness, you do need to plan in advance for that. And there's a number of paperwork that needs to be done throughout. So if that is something that you're considering and you're a listener today, um, just make sure that you're keeping up with the paperwork that you need to do. Last but not least, if you leave the repay program, you may find that they capitalize your interest. So just to be careful. And you know, there's a lot of things that you need to calculate and consider when you're choosing your repayment plan. But um, if you call your loan servicer, they usually can walk you through. Some of those options and help you figure out what your payoff amounts would be if you were to pick different options. So, but I think uh, obviously a very important topic for our listeners.
2: Yeah, one more thing on that is that if you leave one of these programs, then you can typically consolidate your debt and refinance in the private market at a much better rate. But if you do that, then you're no longer eligible for these types of uh, government programs.
1: If you do refinance in the private market, how do you, you know, because I will tell you, I'm getting a million. Mail mailings a day about different places trying to get you to refinance your loans with their company. How do you figure out which ones are good companies or which ones are uh, reputable and not going to scam you?
2: I don't have the answer to that question, yeah. Vicky. It's a bit of the wild west out there in yeah. that uh, almost all of these companies that are really targeting this type of market, most of them have only been doing it for a couple of years. So most of them don't have that much of a track record. It's really tough to tell. I think that we'll probably have a lot more information on that, different, you know, user reviews and things like that over, uh, over the next couple of years as, as we get more experience with these groups.
1: Well, lots to think about and certainly need to do your research before you commit to anything. So, um, you know, I think since we're on the topic of, of student loan debt, I think we should also talk about other kinds of debt, for example, credit cards.
2: Right. Credit card debt is is extremely common, you know, in this country, and uh, medical students and residents and physicians are are not uh, immune to that. Uh, You know, a tremendous amount of people continue to carry a balance on their credit cards, and typical interest rates are 14 plus percent for credit card debt. That's pretty standard. I would highly encourage, uh, as a top financial priority, not keeping a balance on a credit card at at any cost. there's really no better return you're going to find on your money than paying off high interest credit card debt. So if you're locked in at a 20% rate on your credit card, then for every thousand dollars that you pay off, you got a, again, completely guaranteed risk-free return of 20% on that. So for you to be putting money into investments or, you know, saving up for you know, or, or paying more towards your mortgage, which might have a rate of five percent, or things like that, and then you continue to pay twenty percent. You're really just throwing money away. So, at all possible, quickest thing you should do once you have access to more money is to pay off, pay down that credit card debt, pay it down to zero. Get into a pattern where you never, ever, ever keep a balance on your credit card. And credit cards could actually be a tool to to help you, um, you know, get a couple of little extra financial perks. As long as you have good credit, it's pretty standard now to get 1.5% or 2% rewards on your credit cards. So there's nothing wrong with spending money on your credit cards, and you should do it with a reward card that kind of makes uh, sense for you. But if you're going to do it, you know, don't just throw that all away by, uh, by carrying a high interest percentage uh, balance.
1: Well, it sounds like if that's something that's an issue for you, you really want to be paying off that debt before anything else, even before your student loan debt, if yeah. at all possible.
2: So the highest interest needs to be paid off first.
1: Yeah, that's a good, a good rule to follow. Um, and then, you know, for our listeners who are just starting their journey, you know, maybe seeing how it can be very painful later on if you haven't planned for it, just to make sure that you try not to ever get in that situation to begin with if you can avoid it. Right. Um, like Dr. Ryder was saying. You know, obviously good credit's important for a lot of things, which brings us to our next topic of housing and mortgages. So uh, what, what can you tell us about that?
2: Well, uh, a lot of residents aren't going to stick around their first job for that long, and in a couple of years, they're going to find that it's not really the right fit for them, and they're going to want to potentially move on. So if you're in a position where you're renting when you're starting a new job, uh, you have a lot more flexibility, and you also might not feel like, I've got to stay in something that's not really working out because I've got this house as an anchor around my neck. Now, that might not be practical for everybody, and a lot of people are going to feel they need to buy, and that's fine. That's a personal decision. But if you are going to buy a house, most likely it's going to take you at least five years to recoup your investment in terms of price appreciation after paying all the different fees and commissions and and things like that. And of course, it depends on the housing market. Sometimes that could be three years or it could be 20 years. But as a general rule of thumb, if you're going to stick around somewhere for five years, you'll probably at least get your money back. When you're getting a mortgage for for a house, the rate you pay is going to be very much affected by your credit. So it's really important to do what you can, uh, not at the last minute, but uh, over time and, and really especially in that year before you are getting a mortgage to put yourself in a position where you have excellent credit. So you can pay a much lower rate than if you had bad credit, which adds up to a tremendous amount of money in the long run. You also want to find the mortgage product that makes the most sense for you. For some, it's going to be having a Thirty-year fixed mortgage—that's the most common mortgage that's out there. If you have the ability to afford it, you're going to end up paying not only a lower interest rate, but also you're going to be putting a lot more money into force saving for the home a lot quicker if you were to do a fifteen-year fixed rather than a thirty-year fixed. And that's one of the nice things about owning a home—is it does force you to save a lot of money in that you're plowing into home equity that you'll eventually get back, hopefully, when you do sell your house. But for a lot of people especially a graduating resident, instead of getting a fixed-term loan, you're going to be better off getting what's called an ARM loan, adjustable-rate mortgage. And what essentially that means is that it's fixed for a certain amount of time, and then it's variable, and it floats based on the prevailing interest rates. So a 5-1 ARM is probably the most popular, and that would be fixed for five years, and then after five years, then it would float, and the interest rate would readjust based on prevailing interest rates which could be lower or could be higher. If you think that there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be selling that house and moving into another house five years from now, six years from now, seven years from now, it probably makes good sense to get a 5-1 arm or a 7-1 arm where you can be paying typically a significantly lower interest rate than you would on a 30-year fixed or even on a 15-year fixed because it's not the end of the world. If you end up paying a lower interest rate for five years and then you pay a higher interest rate for a little bit until things kind of change and a tremendous amount of graduating residents are going to be in a different financial position to buy a different type of home, say, five to ten years out than they are right off the bat. Right off the bat, you might, because of your financial situation, your family situation, maybe you just want a small starter home. It's not that big, not too many bedrooms. And then 5, 10 years down the line, you've got a lot more money. Maybe you've got a bunch of kids now and things like that that you might not have had before. And you might go, okay, now I want to spend a lot more money on a home. So you would have saved some money over time by potentially having an adjustable rate mortgage if that's something that fits your, your situation. The other thing is uh, refinancing. Once you have a loan, then you want to still be kind of clued in. And every once in a while, be looking at where our mortgage rates at right now. As a general rule of thumb, If interest rates are lower than when you initially made your loan, you're going to often save a lot of money by refinancing. So typically, a 05 to 1% drop in interest rates is probably going to well more than cover the upfront fees that you would expect to pay by doing the refinance and also the hassle of doing the whole thing and all the paperwork uh, involved. And if interest rates have fallen a lot since when you initially got your mortgage, you could save a tremendous amount of money.
1: You had mentioned that a lot of people opt to do those 30 or 15-year mortgages. What is the reasoning behind that being such a popular choice?
2: Well, I think that most people are relatively risk-averse, mm-hmm. and there's a certain amount of uh, stability and security in knowing that I've got this interest rate locked in and it's never going to change as, uh, you know, as long as I have this loan. And people don't like the uncertainty of uh, adjustable rate mortgage that after a certain amount of years, my rates could go up a lot. Now, typically, they're structured in a way that there's a cap, and it can't go up more than a couple of percent above. And of course, that will be disclosed to you in your loan paperwork and things like that. But it, it generally is that you know people are risk averse. But if you're pretty sure that you're not going to be in that loan for 10, 20, 30 years, then It doesn't really matter what happens to interest rates.
1: Do you have any thoughts on the doctor's loans that people are often eligible for?
2: Right. Um, The devil's in the details with doctor loans because it's very variable from lender to lender. So some lenders recognize that, hey, a doctor loan is a great marketing tool for me to offer some extra perks and a good deal to a doctor, and then we can kind of get their business and then potentially – They're going to be allied with our bank, and we're going to use all sorts of other banking services so I can make a lot of money off them in the long term. And I think that's uh, an appropriate way for a lot of these uh, big banks and lenders to kind of look at things. Let's build that relationship, and let's offer, say, 100% financing or 95% financing instead of 80% financing without having to pay any private uh, mortgage insurance, without jacking up the fees or things like that maybe have a more streamlined process make it easier to do so make more flexible with credit maybe a simpler application process and potentially a lower rate because this is a preferred client that you want to get them on board and be loyal to your bank up front so if you can get a program like that that lets you get a better deal on a loan then yeah that's a no-brainer take the best deal and sometimes the best deal is a doctor's loan that's only available to two doctors on the other hand. Some banks, they call it a doctor's loan, they market to doctors, but they're really just trying to to trick you because it's a lousy deal. Now, most of them are at 90% or 95% or 100% financing, and that's kind of their carrot. But a lot of them are going to make you pay for that privilege. So the rate might be 0.5% higher or 1% higher than the prevailing rate. They might have a lot more fees in there than typical. So I wouldn't do a doctor's loan that Isn't a good deal in and of itself. But some doctor's loans are better than what you can get in the general marketplace.
1: And it does seem like it can help if you don't have as much money to put down, that it may allow you to put a smaller amount down and still be eligible to get the loan you need for your house.
2: That's true. But if it's going to be a bad deal, then you're most likely going to be a lot better off if it's at all doable to to delay that home purchase until you're in a position where you've got enough money that you can cover the 10 or 20% down that a more traditional lender might want.
1: That makes sense. That makes sense. You did mention the PMI. Can you talk a bit about the insurance part of it, for the private mortgage insurance?
2: Right. So for for PMI, typically, if you've got a loan where you've got less than a twenty percent down payment, then you're going to have to pay private mortgage insurance uh, because you're considered a, a higher risk type of thing. Now, the banks do have flexibility in it, like through these DR loans programs, where they're essentially going to be covering that that PMI cost, but it does add a lot, you know if you're if you're paying a whole big extra fee for the privilege of having the loan, it makes the loan a lot not such such a very good deal, so you want to avoid paying private mortgage insurance at all costs and I generally don't think that if if you're in a position where you'd have to pay p m i then you probably should be delaying getting the loan. There's all sorts of other things that are associated there's title insurance when you get a home and all that 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 can be a bit of a scam. You kind of have to get title insurance to to make sure that nobody else prior to you has any sort of a lien on the home and things like that. But typically, the title insurance is set up by uh, the real estate agent. And it's really based on who's giving a good kickback to the real estate agent or who they're buddies with or who gives them really big gifts and things like that, rather than what is the best deal for you. And it's a commodity. Title insurance is title insurance. So... Uh, that's something that you don't have to go with what your real estate agent kind of slots in automatically. That's something you could shop around. There's even, uh, you know, online title insurance, uh, direct sellers that sell to all 50 states, like Entitled Direct, which uh, typically you're going to pay about uh, 20, 30 plus percent less than with the local place that your real estate agent recommends.
1: Are there any risks to using the online people?
2: As long as it's a reputable company, I don't think so. You know, uh, if, as long as, as they have any sort of a track record and and it's a legit operation, then I think title insurance is generally title insurance. If you're the type of person that you would be actually going and checking out your local title insurance place in person and going there and just making sure it's legit, okay, I I can see some peace of mind from that. But I would say it's pretty rare. There's not too many people who are knocking on the door of the title insurance company, whether they're going local or going with a place that's more remote.
1: Well, that's a very thorough and very helpful overview of the housing and mortgage uh, portion of things. I think we probably could do a whole separate podcast just on that. But in the interest of time, let's move on to investing. I think that sort of seems to be the next piece of the pie once you've got your debt and loans under control is how do you figure out how to save?
2: Right. Well, investing is a good deal. You know, c- compound interest uh, you know, is, is a, a very uh, positive thing. Traditionally, if you go back uh, over 100 years, then the S&P 500, which is a, a marker for the 500 largest U.S. firms, has returned on average about 11% a year in terms of a positive return. Now, there are definitely negative years, and there's definitely variances. So this is a long-term investment. Whenever you're talking about investing, it's a long-term horizon you're looking at. But it's really hard to lose money in the long term. So again, looking at the S&P 500, which is probably the most tracked index by professionals, there's never, ever been a 20-year period of time where you would have lost money. Take any 20-year period, you would never be in the red. You might be in the red for 5 years or 10 years, but not for, for 20. Now, that doesn't mean it can't happen in the future, but you know, 100-plus years of experience has worked out pretty well. So your odds, if you put a bunch of money in the stock market appropriately, and then you take a bunch of money out 30, 40 years from now, most likely that money's going to be worth a lot more than what you put in. So what you really want to do is any money that you can afford to put into the stock market, you want to do it. You want your money to work for you rather than just sitting in a bank. Now, sure, you want to have an emergency fund. Sure, you certainly want to take care of other more important priorities first, like paying off high-interest credit card debt or paying off high-interest student loans. But once you've got to the point where you've got things under control and you've got money that you've got to figure out what to do with, then you really want to be investing that money. Now, you got to be careful about a lot of different things. For one thing, unless you're going to develop a very high level of expertise and put a lot of time into it, you probably shouldn't be purchasing individual stocks on your own or certainly things like options and hedge funds and private equity and things like that. You probably shouldn't even really try to pick winners with uh, mutual funds where you have uh, essentially a mutual fund manager that's buying stocks on your behalf. All of those things are probably outside the scope of your typical physician who's not going to be putting in in the time to really keep on on top of that stuff however it's not that complicated to build a diversified portfolio that essentially tracks the broader stock market it's dramatically easier to do that now than it was a couple of years ago because you have all these very low cost index funds that essentially do that for you and they even have if you want a little bit more handholding they have target date funds where essentially they're also doing that, but they're changing, you know, the, the mix of your investments over time based on what traditional risk profiles are as you start getting closer to retirement. So you can do these things really very easily without even having to pay a money manager. Now, if you want to pay a money manager, an asset manager, and that gives you an extra degree of confidence, sure, feel free to do that. Shop around for that because they can be quite expensive. Typically, they're about 1% of assets is what they're charging although certainly you can get a, you know, a good uh, asset manager who would uh, take care of you for, for less than that. But they also have you know, these robo-advisors and things like that. Um, and most of your online brokers like Charles Schwab and TD Ameritrade and, you know, and folks like that have options available for you to do that. There's Betterment and Wealthfront and things like that where they're using an automated system to put you into the diversified portfolio. So you don't really need to know anything. All you need to know is that this is a reasonable option. You put your money in there, And it's kind of on autopilot. They do it all for you for a very low fee, sometimes as low as 0%, depending on the situation, but usually under 0.5%. But if you are going to be doing a lot of stuff on your own, you want to be really careful about transaction costs, about trading too much, about the fees you're paying. You don't want to be paying what's called like a load or big transaction fee for buying a mutual fund and things like that. You want to be really careful about chasing performance and you know, something's going up a lot, so I'm going to go buy it because things go up have to keep going up and things like that. And that's not really the, the right thinking. And that's why most of the time you shouldn't just get involved in that at all. And you shouldn't be trying to pick winners and you should just be trying to essentially mimic the broader stock market, which is pretty easy to do. But the two th- problems that are going to be the most costly for you to have everything is starting too late and being too conservative. If it takes you until you're 45, 50 years old before you're really putting any money in the stock market, You've got a lot less years for that, for those gains to compound. And that's going to really cut into things quite a bit. And then you also have a lot less for savings. You, you don't have that portfolio already built up that you would have otherwise had. As a general rule, higher risk things can offer higher returns and very low risk things can offer lower returns. Now, there's certainly plenty of exceptions to that rule. But what you don't want to do is invest so conservatively that you're really handcuffing your opportunity to make any real money.
1: Makes sense. Um, And then with that, I think we probably should talk about 401ks and IRAs and how that works as well.
2: Right. This is a a really good opportunity, these uh, different vehicles, retirement savings uh, vehicles. So almost certainly at your job, you're going to have access to a 401k or at an educational uh, institution, a 403b, which is essentially the same thing. And that allows you to put away a certain amount of tax-advantaged money. So the thresholds change a bit, but you know, generally you can put away about $18,000 plus, depending on how it's set up, whether it's a 401k or a SEP IRA, which is very similar, you're going to be able to put up that type of money plus 20 to 25% of your income up to a certain uh, maximum threshold, which is like around $53,000 and does change a little bit each year. Uh, it typically goes up. So it's an opportunity for you to put away a good amount of money that is tax advantage. So the traditional way is that you put away the money and it doesn't really count as income. So it's essentially, you're not paying taxes on that. And if you're in the highest income tax bracket, that's a lot of savings because the highest income tax bracket currently right now is 39.6% plus another 0.9% for all earned income as part of the uh, healthcare reform. So it's 40.5%. So if you put it into a traditional thing, then you're not going to pay taxes on, you're not going to pay 40.5% taxes on, say, that $220,000 of income that, that you put away that you're, you're not going to be pay, paying taxes on $53,000, you know, if you're kind of capping it out and hitting the maximum threshold. And that's a pretty big deal. Now, you do eventually pay taxes because when you take that money out when you retire, then you're going to pay taxes on it at that point. But probably you're going to be in a lower tax rate because you're, by the time you're taking it out, you're probably not going to be making Real salary income, so you're really just being being charged based on the the amount of money you took out at that point. Plus, you get all this tax advantage growth along the way. Now, there's other accounts called Roth accounts, and they have now Roth not just Roth IRAs, but Roth 401ks as well. That you don't get that tax advantage up front. That you don't not pay taxes up front. You continue to pay that tax up front, but then it goes in that account. It grows tax free. And then when you take the money out, you do not pay taxes at the end. So that's a pretty good deal if you expect you're going to be in a higher income tax bracket when you end up retiring. But for most physicians who are now actually physicians and are getting an attending salary, you're not necessarily going to be in that situation. As a resident, though, as a resident, you're probably going to be in a lower tax bracket, and a Roth account makes a lot more sense. Now, in addition to the money that you can potentially do it through your employer, such as 401Ks and 403Bs and SEP IRAs and things like that. You also could do your own personal IRA account or Roth IRA account, where you can put away a more modest amount of money. I believe this year it's $5,500, and you can have that same type of tax treatment. That being said, there are income thresholds on that, and once you make more than a few hundred thousand dollars, you're not eligible to get the tax deduction for investing money in a traditional IRA. And likewise, you you know with uh, the other types of vehicles too. So that ends up being somewhat limiting. But then a lot of people are doing what's called a backdoor Roth, which is essentially where you put the money in a traditional IRA. You don't get the tax benefit, but then you roll it over into a Roth IRA. And then because you never got the tax benefit up front, you don't have to pay taxes on the rollover. So you, it gives you a way to put money into a Roth account. There's also profit-sharing accounts and other types of accounts like that. That depending on your group you might be in a situation where you can put up, you know, even significantly larger sums of money past $53,000, um, which is good. And if you're an independent contractor, as many emergency physicians are, then you can set up your own solo 401k or solo SEP IRA and essentially accomplish the same thing and put away about $53,000 in tax-advantaged uh, money. So it's something that is a really good deal and it's something that, that any physician making an attending salary should do whatever they can to max that out now there are higher priorities like paying off high interest credit card debt and stuff like that but you're getting a really good opportunity so once you move past higher opportunities you really want to do anything you can to max that out every time and some employers are going to make the contribution on your behalf sometimes you self-fund sometimes there's a match involved certainly if there's a match involved there's no better deal than that if they're giving you a one-to-one match so if i put in 18,000 they're going to match in 18,000 that's a 100% return on my money, you know, guaranteed. So that's kind of a no-brainer, but that's kind of uncommon. It's very common in, in most of uh, the private sector, but in, in medicine it's pretty rare with physicians that they're going to kind of set it up in a way that it's a match.
1: Yeah, and I think that what you mentioned about the match is a great, a great point if you do have one. I mean, your employer is basically whatever you put in, they're putting in to match with you. So it's a really great way to build up your retirement if that is available to you. So.
2: Right. One other thing about these accounts is that when you're looking at a job, it's something you should look at. It's an important piece of your compensation. Are they funding some of this? And also, what do you have access to? If you only Some places have it set up, they only have access to putting away $18,000. Other places have it, you have the ability to put away $53,000 tax advantage. Others might even have things structured in a way that allows you to go well past that. So it's certainly not the most important thing when you're looking at a job, but it is a little piece of a puzzle.
1: Speaking of jobs, though, what about compensation? You know, how do you sort that out and what it should be?
2: Right. Well, I think you want to get a good idea of, you know, what is, what does the market look like? And there are different compensation surveys and things like that. You know, Daniel Stern is a big one and Medscape is is another one that will give you an idea of what things look like nationally or even regionally. But compensation essentially, in most circumstances, gets pretty local. So you want to try to do your homework and get an idea of when you're comparing compensation of what else is out there in that general area that you're looking at. But also when you're looking at compensation is you want to compare apples to apples whenever possible. So uh, people have things structured in different ways. You can be an employee, you can be an independent contractor, and that has different ramifications. As an independent contractor, essentially you're paying the employer's share of uh, different self-employment taxes, such as Social Security and Medicare. So your tax bill is a fair amount higher. Like if you make about $300,000, then you're going to pay about $10,000, $15,000 in taxes that you otherwise wouldn't as an independent contractor. As a result, most people are paid a bit more as an independent contractor for the same job as an employee to offset that. But if things you're not being paid more, then, you know, that's a bit of a consideration. Now, you do get certain tax advantages of being an independent contractor. You can take a different types of deductions and things like that. But, you know, you want to keep that, take that into account. And you also have a bigger burden as an independent contractor. You have to file quarterly estimated taxes, which isn't a big deal, but it's a little bit of a pain in the ass. So it's something you kind of have to be aware of. But when you're looking at different compensation packages, try to compare apples to apples whenever you can. Some places are going to offer a variety of different benefits. Some might not offer any benefits. What's more important is what are the benefits worth it to you? If you're a single person who's, you know, pretty healthy and all that, it might not be that important that the employer is paying for a $20,000, 25000 health insurance family policy when, you know, the value to you is you could buy bought your own policy on your own for $5,000. So you don't really get that benefit. But things like typically, you know, straight compensation, you know, salary type of stuff, as, as well as uh, retirement stuff, that, that, that has some extreme, you know, value there that you should really be looking at. There's all sorts of uh, different things that they can do with benefits you also have to look at what am I getting, what what am I doing for it? Am I seeing essentially two patients an hour? Am I seeing three patients an hour? Am I seeing one patient an hour? And what type of acuity level is that for that? I mean, it helps you get a better better idea of your work intensity if you try to get an idea, well, what am I really kind of being paid per patient? But of course, everything with the the compensation is just one, one part of, you know, your job decision, and you really want to be focusing much more when you're, looking at different jobs, not simply at the differences between their compensation, but all the other aspects of a job that make it a better fit for you, the work environment, the practice environment, the people you're going to be working with, and all the other, uh, the other parts of that.
1: And, you know, as a part of that, you know, when people first start working, it's in addition to paying off debts, you know, how do you save and where should you put your savings And Do you feel that it's helpful for people to have an emergency fund? Is that something that you would recommend to new investors?
2: It certainly is something that you should strive towards. Now, typically, most finance experts would say that everybody should have an emergency fund of at least six months to a year, so that if you were in a position where you weren't earning any real income for that period of time, that you have that that time to get back on your feet and, and, and all that. In emergency medicine, I think you can be a bit more aggressive. It's not quite as important. For a couple of reasons. First of all, as a resident, the odds of you losing your income stream as a resident is extremely low. Not too many residents get fired and lose their job. Now, it can happen, but you're pretty mu- you should be pretty uh, confident that you're going to get your 50, 55,000, $60,000 throughout the course of your residency. So you don't have to worry as much about unexpected things. Most of the time, residents are going to have at least some sort of short-term or intermediate-term disability policy that's also going to be part of their standard benefits. Now, as an attending, emergency physicians, they they do change jobs quite a bit. You know, you can lose your job pretty suddenly and things like that. That being said, it's not that hard to get another job. So because of that, you know, it's it's not as worrisome as if you were, for instance, a uh, highly compensated salesperson, and then you end up losing your job, and then it might be a very long time until you get another job or you'll take a job for a much lower salary. So I think that most emergency physicians, instead of, you know, going for like about a year of emergency fund, probably would be okay with like three to six months as an emergency fund, and that they're better off plowing that excess cash into investments and things like that, that you can always tap into, of course, uh, if needed. And before building your emergency fund at all, I would uh, take care of the most pressing financial priorities, such as any uh, high-interest credit card debt that you're paying like 15% for, 20% for because, you know, if it, if it comes down to it, you're not like completely sunk. There are other things that you could, uh, you know, that you can, uh, that you can do um, if you're under uh, a tremendous amount of financial stress, knowing that you're going to have the ability to make some real money as an emergency doc pretty, pretty quickly.
1: That sounds great. And I think uh, last but not least, you know, think talking about worst case scenarios, you know, you have to talk about insurance. So I think this will be our last topic for this lecture, but you know, that can be daunting as well. So what are your thoughts on the whole insurance market and what people should be getting insurance for?
2: Right. I think that if you talk to an insurance salesman, they're going to tell you how you need every insurance (laughs) out there and that you need to have as much coverage as possible and things like that. But the purpose of insurance is to insure risk. So what is really most important is what risk are you comfortable with? You know, although the insurance salesman will say, well, of course you need to have disability insurance for potential uh, benefit of equal to your salary, Well, maybe you're okay with taking on the risk that if I get like completely disabled, I don't necessarily need to live the full emergency physician lifestyle. I'm willing to potentially take a hit if something like that happens. So maybe you, if you get disability insurance, maybe you don't max it out and you go with uh, a level that you'd be capable of if you were in that type of situation. Maybe your life circumstance is different. You might have a a spouse that uh, has a, a, a pretty good job with some pretty good compensation that's pretty stable. If that's the case, you might figure, I don't really need disability insurance at all because my spouse is my disability insurance. That if I were to become completely disabled, we can get by with that. You know, life insurance, I think life insurance makes a lot of sense when you've got a family and you're the breadwinner. On the other hand, and you don't have a real nest egg, something wants to happen to you. On the other hand, if you don't have family, then what are you really insuring? You know, is it that important that your parents or somebody like that, you know, gets a big death benefit if something was to to happen to you? Or let's say that you've been out in practice for a while and you've done a good job and you've saved and invested millions of dollars. Well, maybe you don't really need life insurance anymore because you already have your life insurance. You've got the the nest egg that you've built up. So for all the different types of insurances, I think you got to figure out what makes the most sense based on my own personal situation and based on my own risk profile, rather than just what somebody's trying to sell you. Because insurance is, never, is rarely a good deal. The insurance company has to make money off of you. And a tremendous amount of people are gaming the system and are saying they have things wrong with them that they really don't have and things like that, which also really inflates costs for that. So it's never really a good deal to get insurance. So you should only really be insuring what makes sense to you based on uh, your personal risk. Another thing with insurance is that you want to really shop around. You can get a dramatically better deal from some places than from others. And this also very much uh, is impacted by your credit score. If you've got good credit, you're going to get a better deal typically on insurance than not. One last thing I'll mention with insurance is typically the most lucrative insurance to sell, particularly for life insurance, is what they call like the whole life insurance. It's not just insurance policy, but it's also an investment vehicle, kind of all combined into one. But typically, it doesn't do that good of a job of either, and fees are really quite considerable with that. So most of the time, for most people's situation, we'd better off, Paying a lot less for term life insurance and taking the excess dollars that you might have otherwise been, been spending and investing that money on your own.
1: That makes sense. And do you have any thoughts? People sometimes talk about umbrella insurance as well. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Again, it's kind of what your risk profile is. Uh, umbrella insurance supposedly you know, shields you from some personal liability that falls outside of a variety of other things. So maybe when the uh, uninsured uh, contractor working on your house falls off the roof and, and breaks their neck. Perhaps that's something that your umbrella policy might protect you from and things like that. So you you just have to figure out, you know, how crazy do I want to be, you know, because you could get insurance for anything in the world. So how much insurance do I really want? How many different things? How big of a risk do I really think this is? How important is this for me? And you also want to make sure you have something worth insuring. Like if you're just out of residency, you don't really have any money. You know, why pay for umbrella insurance? okay, so if somebody uh, breaks their neck on your property or something like that, well, you don't really have anything for them to take. You know, why do you want to spend a bunch of money on umbrella insurance? But yeah, if you have a lot of assets and, you, and you're concerned about these types of things, then it's something you could consider doing.
1: might be makes it something that makes sense as you go forward and as you, like, as you accumulate assets in a home. Well, I think that was a very thorough overview. I think from what we talked about today, so we covered saving, budgeting, loans, debt, both credit cards and student loan debt, housing and mortgages investing, 401ks and IRAs, compensation, emergency funds, and how much you should save, and then last but not least, insurance. So Dr. Ryder, that was a whirlwind tour through the world of finance. And thank you so much for your thoughts and comments today. And thank you for being here with us.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.